0: Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And when you think of the book of Haggai, what comes to mind? Probably nothing. Probably you've never heard a sermon on the book of Haggai. I actually looked it up, and it is the fifth least popular book in the Bible. So we are out of 66 books. This is the fifth least read, and you might wonder why. Why is this book and the rest of the minor prophets, by and large, not read? Well, I'll give you three reasons. First is the context of these books is really specific and takes a lot of thinking. So you're going to have to go on a little bit of a journey with me today. It takes a lot of thinking to get the message of each minor prophet. Two, the names are just hard to pronounce. They're hard to pronounce. Let's give it up for Joel. (laughs) Low key, the best at Hebrew at Citizens Church. Everyone knows it, low key for sure. And third, in the minor prophets, the messages are kind of tough to hear because God has this pattern in his prophets of bringing the truth of God to bear on a people that says, here's this specific problem and here's how you could turn to me and receive my presence. And then in the Old Testament, the blessings that flow from it. But it can be a difficult message to hear because it gets so specific. And the work we have to do is to look exactly what is God saying to Israel in Haggai and then apply it to ourselves. And a common phrase could help us here. Moving back to the South, I hear it all the time. And it says, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that phrase means two different things. It means you started out with good intentions, but then your kind of dark heart twisted things along the road. Or it could mean um, you wanted to do something good, but you kind of lacked the follow-through or the conviction to actually pull it off. And when it comes to Haggai, both would fit. See, the people in Haggai had just came back from being held captive in Babylon, modern day Iraq. And Israel and the promised land and the temple had all been destroyed by the Babylonians who came to Israel, took the people, destroyed the city, headed back, to Babylon. And God had allowed this to happen because the Hebrew people had been unfaithful to God. They'd not listened to God, they'd followed other gods, they'd not trusted him, they'd not honored him in the way he asked to be honored. So God let this invasion and then capture, this like kidnapping of a whole civilization of people in moving to Babylon to occur, but after 70 years in captivity in Babylon, God, through a political process of changing of rulers, had gotten all the people permission to come back and to reestablish Jerusalem and Israel. And the people in these like successive caravans from modern-day Iraq back to Israel, they came back. And they started rebuilding the temple, yet they quickly abandoned the rebuild. They quickly walked away from the work. And so Haggai steps on the scene and says this in verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins. The people had convinced themselves Hey, it's not time to rebuild yet. Hey, it's just not time. There's a time, there's a season for everything, but this is not the season to rebuild the temple. But the problem with that thinking is it had persisted for 18 straight years. A guy is not coming like two months later saying, we need to get back to work, guys. The rains are gone. They could have had a kid and gone through high school in the same time. And they're like, not time to rebuild the houses, guys. Not time to rebuild the temple, guys. It's just not time. And we learn from the book of Ezra that the work had started and stalled, and there had been some real difficulties. But the Lord points out the truth that these difficulties, while they happened, the people were still able to build houses for themselves. Able not just to build houses or dwellings for themselves, but Build paneled houses. This is the Lord our God coming down on shiplap. No more of that, guys. But in all seriousness, God said, you think you're too busy to rebuild a temple, and that's been your excuse for 18 straight years. So let's do some straight talking. There's no fooling God. You're not too busy to build the temple if you have plenty of time to build yourself a fancy house. They had good intentions. They had returned from Jerusalem. They didn't keep big city life. They'd started rebuilding the temple, but somewhere along the line, they had lacked the conviction, the follow through and turned selfish. And we might ask, why is the temple so important? Is it because God was homeless and needed a house Well, by no means. Acts 17 is pretty clear that God does not dwell in a home made by human hands. Was it because this would show the world just how powerful God is that he has a temple? Well, no, this was a barely surviving uh, group just trying to scrabble together the settlements in what was an often violent world. The temple was important because the temple is how God gave his presence To his people. The temple was how a holy God could dwell with a sinful, broken people. See, in the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 1, God dwells with his people, Adam and Eve, before sin. He walks with them in the cool of the day. That is the relationship God wants to have with you and all people. But because of sin, Adam and Eve were dismissed from the garden. A holy God cannot live with sinful people. So therefore, when God delivered the Hebrews out of slavery from Egypt under Moses, Moses was instructed to build what is a fancy tent we call a tabernacle. Once my friend Andy sent me an answer from a test that said, what is the book of Exodus about? There's a lot of crazy stuff, but it's all about the tent in the end. True. Because God would dwell with his people through this tabernacle and the right sacrifices made. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so God had his presence with a sinful Israel through the tabernacle. And as they moved to this promised land, Israel, King David eventually gathered up all the materials. And then his son Solomon actually built this grand temple to replace this movable tabernacle with a huge temple and that God would be there in a way that they could make sacrifices to him and God's presence could be with the people. The way God's people could be with their God was the temple. So when the returning ones didn't rebuild the temple in 18 years past, they weren't just skipping building the lake house. They were skipping God. This was their access to God. There are people who, who had returned, they, they had started, but then they had skipped out on God himself. The whole reason they were exiled to Babylon was an unfaithfulness to God. And here they were back from the captivity, going about their day. Too busy, it's not the time to build the temple. Who has time for God, since that was their access to God? Who cares about the promise giver if we could just be in the promised land? It's shudder-worthy stuff to really think about that mindset and how pervasive it is among us. I want Christ's benefits, but maybe not Christ. I want a happy life. I want uh, I want satisfaction. I want fulfillment. I want heaven. But do we want Christ? We can have a similar. Mindset, But Haggai's prophecy continues, verse 5 and 6. And I want to, God challenges them to stop and consider before they respond. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. They have been skipping out on God. So when God calls them to consider their ways, it's an all-time mic drop that, guys, you've forgotten about me How's that working for you? And God calls their attention that their life was meant to thrive with God, that you were created by God and created for God. And without the Lord, we too become a people who are never truly satisfied. Work feels like we never achieve enough. The harvest is always a little short. We look for that next drink or smoke or pill, yet it is not enough. Imagine the picture that God is giving that life without God is like wearing more and more clothing, but never quite getting warm. Picture that coat after coat after coat and still having a chill up the spine of your back because nothing in this world is going to satisfy a soul made by an eternal God to be with Him. You ever feel like the bag in your life has holes in it? That the good things always feel like they're slipping through the cracks? The Hebrew people would carry something like a fanny pack for their money. And that's the analogy he's making that the coins would rattle on out. Now the Lord highlights this difference in this next passage that we have between this people, Israel, and us. I applied these spiritually to us, much as Christ applies many parts of Old Testament to a heart or spiritual level, yet God meant these things to this people extremely literally, absolutely literally, literally to these people back from Babylon. Look with me, it's verses 7 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go go up to the hills and bring wood and build, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? It wasn't just an accident that they always didn't have enough and they were always thirsty and always hungry and never could get warm. Why declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld dew. The earth has withheld produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine and the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their laborers. See, God had not a metaphor, but literally pulled back his blessings from Israel to let these people be hungry, to let them be thirsty, to let them be frustrated by their efforts because they had forgotten about God. So God withheld his usual blessing of Israel in their relationship in that they would turn back to him, that they would notice their life. There's nothing that gets a human's attention like suffering. Suddenly everything else kind of comes to a real close, tight picture like a telescope. But here's the big difference in their relationship to God is Israel, God's chosen nation and our relationship to Christ. In the relationship of the Old Testament Israel, material blessings proved the goodness of God both to them and the watching world. They were one nation out of all nations, of all all peoples on the face of the earth in relationship with the true God, Yahweh. And seeing the blessings of when they were in obedience with God was to make all the other nations jealous of who is this God among all false but rival gods. But for us, We have the spiritual blessings of forgiven sin and a new heart that prove Jesus' redemption to a watching world. See, we don't have a relationship of blessings or no blessings or things like that in a physical sense, but rather a spiritual sense that everyone apart from faith in Christ is spiritually dead. And all who repent and believe upon Christ become spiritually alive. Their sins are forgiven. A new heart is formed. And sure, by living by wisdom, God can give blessings to his people, but it's not one for one. If we live unwisely, things might go poorly. If we live wisely, things tend to go well, but not always so in either case. So that's why you have to be careful in applying a book like this is because we are under this gospel of grace, but it still has the same point of this passage to them and us is the very same. That the Lord is the most precious in the most important of all things. It's the same lesson for you, for them, for all people, that the message of Haggai is that the Lord is the most precious and important of all things. And when we fail to prioritize the Lord, we lose always. When we fail to prioritize the Lord, we lose. Therefore, the Lord must be first. The Lord must be first. If you are to follow Jesus, you must follow him with your whole heart. We talk about our heart as a garden here at Citizens all the time. And the more that garden is submitted to Jesus, as we learn to submit more of the garden to Jesus, we get a chance to follow Jesus with our whole heart, not follow our fear, not follow our hunger, not follow our thirst, not follow our want of relationship, not follow our loneliness, not let our emotions overrun us, but instead submit all that to Jesus and then follow him with all that is in our life. The Lord must be first or we'll always lose because he is the most important and precious of all things. So what should we do, church? We should consider our ways just as they were called to consider their ways, we need to ask ourselves, where am I trying to find ultimate satisfaction outside of the Lord? Where am I trying to find hope where there is not true hope? Where am I trying to find true love where there is not true love? Where am I trying to have true faith in something or an idea that is not true faith? And we can even use this list of things. It's a good list that the prophet Haggai brings to us. Do I find myself looking for that paneled house on Zillow or Instagram or HDTV to make me happy or satisfied? If only I had this many square feet or an extra bathroom or just got to own a home at all or got out of this bad rental situation, then I would be happy. That's a good way to reveal our hearts. What about food and drink? Do I seek satisfaction and fat and carbs and protein and stimulants and depressives? Is my life about what I have or what I can wear? Or if you want to go deeper with me, if an unbelieving person, if you were to sit down and have a cup of coffee with them and you were to print out all your credit card statements for a year, all your bank account statements for a year and have a, a friend that, that you love but doesn't believe in the Lord, look down all your credit card statements, all your bank account statements, and just say, hey, man, could you tell me tell me what, what I care about most? Here's a highlighter. You, you, you tell me what I care about most. With the unbelieving person, look at it and go, man, you... you you sure do love God and love his people and you spend your money on relationships that matter to you. You give generously to missions. You give generously to your church. You, You seem to be someone who is trusting the Lord with your finances. Or would they say, I don't know, it looks about the same as me. Spire hits me with bills too high too, man. Netflix is always raising. There's nothing wrong with paying our gas bill or having Netflix. But is that the story of our whole life? That it's a bag that the money just always seems to trickle out of. There's never enough, and there's always 18 more years to wait for something else. I had a close friend at a former church that we came from called Sojourn, and he was a young, growing leader in the church. He was getting married, and he was doing as young men in their late 20s getting married do. He was getting a financial house in order to be impressive to his bride, as they were going to talk about for the first time, and he was real fired up. And he had wanted to meet with me to talk about that. And we were getting ready to do their premarital. And he had recently bought an app that organized his spending into different categories. So it was easy to see where his money went, eating out or this or that. And one of the tabs was coffee shops. And Louisville has some great coffee shops. But at the same time, it was about January, and he had gotten a letter from his local church about his giving for the year, thanking him. Same as you get from Citizens. Hopefully you get a letter with a nice note from me saying, thank you, you guys are great. And he was cut to the heart because he saw what was on the letter and how much he spent on coffee shops. And coffee shops was about triple to four to five times what he had given to his church. And in the meeting, he 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 was vulnerable and just asked me, hey man, do, do people like really give like percentages of their income to stuff? Like, like to missions and their church and stuff like that. I had to sit with him, say, yeah, this community group, I, I don't know what they give, but I, I I think most of the people in this group really are giving like five, 10% of their income, 15% for some of them away to the Lord's work. He asked me specifically about my house, and I shared with my convictions and our practices for me and Elena. And this man, full-grown man, started to really weep. And he said he felt like such a fool that he had out loud boasted of how great the Lord in his life all the time. He was a guy who would share his faith at the drop of the hat with you, but how meager he had really trusted the Lord with his finances. And he asked what to do. And this is a true source. I told him three things. I said, Hey, don't ignore the Lord's conviction. Don't, 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 don't walk away from it. Don't, don't, don't turn. Don't forget this day. Let's go to second Corinthians eight and nine. Let's just read through. Let's solidify that conviction you're feeling from God. It's a good thing. This is something that's making you more like the Lord and, and make the change. Don't delay. Don't wait 18 years. Don't have a big day and don't do anything. Do something. We can change it now. And second, I said, take a financial class from the church. Learn more about this whole area of your life and how to steward it. And third, I said, would you tell others this story with Jesus as the hero? And he went all the way to that level, even offered it and wrote it up as a testimony. Would you use this at some point from the pulpit at at church, um, at, at, at that church, whenever you need it? Because I don't care who knows it. If the Lord knows my sin, then I don't care who knows it. And I know there's others like me. And today, I just want you to invite you to consider your ways, whatever it is, whether it's food or drink or longing for a better life or a better circumstance. What are the things that you're looking for ultimate satisfaction in other than the presence of God and prioritizing that? Because you can join these people of Haggai's day who heard the word of the Lord through their prophet, through their preacher, The way God often works. And they responded big. Look at verse 12 and 15 with me. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, all the people there, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. What a beautiful thing. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people of the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judea, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Within three weeks of the prophecy, remember these people don't have cars, they don't, they don't have quick transportation, how'd they even get this message out? They would have had to immediately have heard it in every town and neighborhood and settlement, stop what they're doing, started gathering timber, started gathering stone, started lining up oxen to pull all this stuff. And it says they are at the work within three weeks of the message dropping. That whatever was so busy for 18 years suddenly didn't seem to matter all that much because that's how conviction and repentance works. Lust that seemed like a part of your life that could never end suddenly has conviction and a path forward for redemption and progress. Coveting that seemed like it was just a part of your life, driving home angry, wishing you had someone else's car, suddenly conviction comes and a new path of repentance starts. Hating someone, unforgiveness, suddenly conviction comes and a new path begins. Let's be the people that turn when we hear the word of the Lord and pursue after God. And don't delay. And it says the Lord was with them. They had life with God again. And God in Haggai chapter two restored all their material blessings as well because God is faithful. He's the one who's stirring up their hearts, stirred up the heart of Haggai to bring the prophecy, stirred up the hearts of the leaders to listen, stirred up the heart of the people to listen, stirred them up to obey, provided the resources because this project wouldn't be over in another two weeks. It would actually be five years of faithful work and probably not the easiest conditions but they started to prioritize the Lord over all things. So it wasn't that big of a deal. We can make an excuse for anything to not obey the Lord. Raise your hand if you can make an excuse. Don't act like you've been a Christian your whole life. Thank you. you. we got an honest church. I can make an excuse to not obey the Lord. But when it comes before the examination of the word of the Lord, like Hebrews 4 says, and it comes before the, the word, suddenly we see the truth. Suddenly we see this excuse doesn't matter very much, but the Lord matters an awful lot. So God stirred up their hearts to obey and was with them on all five years of the journey to rebuild temple, that God's presence would be with his people. So church, I want us to apply this in three distinct ways in our life. So first is this, prioritize the presence of God in your life. There could not be a better sermon series for this than to say, I wanna take these seven spiritual practices, disciplines seriously. Are you gonna add all seven in a big way in your life? Probably not. Probably not, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to try all seven and try to add one new one to your life. Will you do that with me, church? Try all seven. There's nothing crazy on here. These are things Jesus did to pursue his own father's heart and enjoy enjoy the father just as we are supposed to. Spiritual disciplines aren't magic. Spiritual disciplines aren't the only way God can meet with you, but spiritual disciplines are like this. Did anyone grow up in a floodplain? I grew up in a floodplain. That's where we could afford the house where we lived in Richmond, Virginia. And it was a floodplain that said, it floods here every 15 years or 20 years. And there were signs up everywhere that you knew that the floodplain was here. Spiritual disciplines are like going and putting your chair down in the floodplain of God's grace. You can't make yourself grow, but it sure does rain here all the time. And I want you to be overwhelmed with the grace of God. I want you to find life and maybe all seven disciplines to go, man, these are changing the way I live my life, which is making me look like Jesus, not just with my mouth, but from my heart and in my actions and how I value my time. So one prioritize the presence of the Lord Two, prioritize the church, prioritize citizens, church, see the temple evolves that concept. In John 2 we find out Jesus is the new temple. That actually Jesus is the temple of the Lord. But then we also find out in 1 Corinthians 3 that you you yourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so to- You become the temple of the Lord in the New Testament. Jesus is the temple, you're the temple. But then we find out in Ephesians 2, it says when we get all these temples together in a local church that God binds them together to build a house that he would be worshiped, exactly what we're doing here, that disciples would be made, that people would learn to love the Lord with their whole heart, that the local church becomes the temple of God as a house of believers together with the presence of God. So what I'm asking you is to unbusy yourself. I love our church and we are crushing it in the relational game. I say, why not just turn it up? Don't wait for the church to overorganize your life. Instead, step into relationship and friendship and get unbusy with things that matter less and get more busy with relationships that matter more, especially ones with unbelievers to tell them the goodness of Christ and his gospel and with believers to be deeply encouraged. Why not, friends? I want to have a policy. You can always ask someone's name. It doesn't matter if you've been introduced six times. You can always ask someone's number. Boys, don't be weird. And you can always invite someone over. Our culture has devalued church so much that we see it as a take it or leave it movie. And I'll just go DIY my Christianity. The problem with that is there's no support for that anywhere in the Bible. And it's just another version of I'm too busy for God, so I'll just do what I want. Number three, prioritize or consider your ways personally, but not privately. Make a date with your spouse, with your roommate, with your best friend to bring up, even bring it up in Romans, your leaders will make space, the ways that you want to reprioritize the presence of the Lord, the presence of the church, the Lord in the church or the presence of moving things out of your life that are disobedient or getting in the way of you seeking God's presence. Make a date with your spouse, best friend, roommate, whoever that person is to you. Hopefully it's someone in this room or in a group with you. And just share openly. Be like the man in that story that at some point he just goes, I don't care who knows. Jesus knows, and everyone around here's here to help me. So let's do it. So make it. Make it an appointment in your life to share how you are moving towards God. And when you do it with people, here's what you'll find. Instead of judgment, they'll usually want to pray for you, encourage you, support you, hold you accountable in life-giving ways. People pay the, the secular world tons of money for this kind of stuff. And it's free in the church, baby, to actually change, to be different. So prioritize the presence of God. Prioritize the church. And prioritize considering your ways personally, but don't keep it private. Keep it appropriate, but don't keep it private. Following Jesus is more than one big commitment once. Following Jesus is a constant recommitment in our priorities, our decisions, our thoughts. Those people, the ones, there was people who didn't leave Babylon. They probably thought the people who went back to Jerusalem were crushing it. There was a whole host of this Hebrew nation, still in Babylon, probably thinking like, man, what faith? They must be crushing it to move all the way home. But without recommitment, it'd been 18 years of unfaithfulness. Without recommitment, not that we need a big ceremony to recommit, but we make a big decision, and then we keep making those decisions daily towards it, just like a marriage, just like a job, just like a friendship. So it is with the Lord. If Jesus is first, church, you simply will never lose and never be ashamed of your life. You've been listening to the Citizens Church podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.